0: It's long been understood in the Eastern wisdom traditions that you require energy in order to sustain whatever mental state or state of awareness that you achieve through your practice and sometimes this fact is missed a little bit in the West and that's something that I (laughs) I think is worth exploring. So if you look at the alternative arts, the spiritual arts, whatever you want to call them, often there is a distinction between uh, two main lines of practice or a distinction we can draw. One of these lines is, lines, is a line that's based around energy work, around chi or prana or opening the channels or moving energy through the body, things like this. There is a second line that is based very much upon consciousness, often based upon inquiry or developing of certain mental qualities like concentration or so on and so on to enter into meditative states. And it's quite interesting to me that often there is a distinction between the two. I remember even uh, encountering these arts and I was interested in both. But I found that there were groups of people that only really liked one or the other. There were people that really wanted to study energetics. They wanted to understand their chakra. They want to understand their channels. They want to understand the microcosmic orbit. They want to build all this chi. But they weren't really interested in meditation. They didn't want to sit for hours contemplating the the nature of reality or the nature of self. Then when I went on meditation retreats for the first time, I found people that were fascinated by self inquiry and fascinated by long periods of sitting and working with the breath and developing various mental qualities. But they weren't interested in Qigong, they weren't interested in in this idea of moving the energy or developing Prana or or whatever from, from your tradition. Now I felt that was a real shame because that was clearly a divide that had developed over time that I don't think was supposed to be there originally. Well, that was my thought at the time. And then the deeper and deeper I went into these arts, um, I discovered for sure, no, there there wasn't supposed to be a distinction. The two were supposed to run alongside each other. So what is the relationship between these two? How do the practices of energy work or developing your chi? and the practice of meditation come together. Well, to understand this, we need to understand something really quite simple, in that we understand that your body needs energy in order to grow or to develop, and we get this through our food primarily, and the efficiency of the functioning of the body, the production of energy within the cells, and so on and so on. We also understand that the mind needs energy. If you don't have the sustenance for the mind, then the mind gets tired, it's difficult to concentrate, and so on and so on, but it's also the same for your spirit, for your soul, for your spiritual development. It also requires energy in order to uh, sustain itself. We could say that if you don't have the chi, if you don't have the energy, then you cannot sustain the mental state. It cannot stay. I like to think of very simple examples and one of the simplest for me is Just imagine how you are when you've got lots of energy. Say you've had a really good night's sleep and life is good and you've got lots of energy and you're very healthy. And then you have to deal with a difficult person or a difficult situation. How do you do it? Well, often with patience and understanding and all of those qualities that you would deem virtuous and positive. Now, take that same difficult person (laughs) or that difficult situation. When you're tired, you haven't slept for two days, maybe Your health has not been so good. You've been a bit under the weather. How do you react to that person or that situation then? Not the same, right? Grumpy, a little bit snappy, and maybe without the understanding that you should have, you know, or would be more virtuous at that time. So in that case, the level of energy is that you have is literally sustaining your emotional state. Okay. It is enabling you to remain either virtuous or to slip into grumpy and, uh, Less, less pleasant behavior, you know. It's difficult to sustain that kindness when you're tired. Now this is not so different from how it is if you manage to get some kind of consciousness shift through your meditation practice. So maybe you've uh, had an experience of maybe either a minor awakening or, or maybe just even uh, absorbed into a very fine po- point of concentration or, or something like this. What happens when people have these experiences is often, well, it becomes fleeting. It's there and then it's gone. Maybe uh, they enter into a state for a couple of weeks. or Maybe it's very profound. Maybe it's a full awakening. Maybe for a few weeks or a few hours or a few minutes, they can see through the veil of the illusion of separation or, or something like this, you know. But what happens a few weeks later? Well, often they're right back to where they were. We can see this often with uh, many sort of famous teachers, if I were to be (laughs) a little bit mean. You know, they will often write about the experience that they had. Five years ago, I had this awakening experience. Ten years ago, I had this awakening experience. And since this time, I've been desperately trying to get back there. It's a common story and this story, uh, you know, then varies in in nature, you know, but, but generally it's based around this kind of same concept that I had this experience and since then I've been trying to get back there or I've been trying to reverse engineer the process to how I got there or, or whatever. Now the Taoists, the Hindus and some other traditions, some lines of Buddhism and, and so on and so on understood this. They understood that this was a challenge, that this was a difficulty or likely to happen. So they developed teachings based upon the movement of energy. Why? Why did they want the channels open? Why did they want the chakra developed? Why did they want the circulations? Why did they want the prana, the chi? Because the more efficiently that the body functioned on the level of energetics, the more open the energy body was, the more likely you were to sustain that state. It serves as a kind of foundation in the same way as you're more likely to be kind when you've got lots of energy as opposed to when you're tired. It's the same with your awakening state. What people don't realize is the amount of energy you have, it fuels whatever that consciousness state is. If we can understand this principle, we can understand not only how these two arts come together, the energetic arts and the meditative arts, but we can also understand a little bit where some of the risks might come in. Because, especially through energy work, you know, uh, what we do is we find pockets of energy in the body and we increase the abili- the body's ability to produce and store this energy, especially around the Dantian or something like this in the Chinese arts. Now what will happen when you have more of this energy? It has to go somewhere. So initially, this energy might go into the body. So the body might, the health might improve or uh, people might find they have more vitality or more zest over the course of the day. And, and this is often what people encounter at the beginning. But the body can only be juiced up so much, you can only receive so much Qi, so then it has to go somewhere else. And often where that energy then goes is to the mind. It will go to whatever your conscious state is, and then it will boost that, it will develop that, it will reinforce that or whatever. Now herein lies the problem, because if your uh, consciousness state is one full of deep insecurities or hurts or desire for power or, or whatever, then that is going to be fueled, that is going to receive more energy. If, however, your state is one of virtue and connection and compassion and kindness, then the energy is going to support that state. If your mind state, your, your experience of reality is one of, uh, you know, something higher, <laughs> something beyond the realms of self, something uh, along the realms of experiencing the absolute, uh, a state of being fairly awakened, then the energy will move to that place and support that state instead. This is the root of why the connection between meditation and energy work must be there. The meditation enables you to see through the veil of that which is false, enables you to develop the correct mental qualities that are required in order to experience maybe what we can call spirit or a connection to spirit. It is difficult at that stage to find language to discuss such things and and traditions will (laughs) even quarrel over it, you know, over what that experience is, but hmm, it doesn't matter, you know. But if you are able to find that state or develop the qualities that are needed to see through the veil, to have that experience, then what will happen is the more effective the energy work within your body, the more efficient the, the system that you have developed, the more it will pour through to that state. It's like fuel gets poured on the fire, you know, and, and that fire can either be massively positive and burn through the illusions of reality, or the fire can be negative and it can be destructive. Yeah, it depends. They say that uh, where the mind goes, the chi follows. And yeah, that's kind of true, I suppose. And sometimes people assume that means, you know, if I put my mind on my hands, the chi goes here or something. And actually, I think they're talking about something more, more profound. Whatever the state of your mind is, whatever your awareness is drawn towards, whatever is illuminated by consciousness within you, whichever part of your being is at the fore, this is where the energy is going to flow. They're not talking about a, an action a lead the chief of the mind. They're talking about a quality that will develop in you, depending upon who you are as a person and what your state of realization is. So then we have different layers, you know, different layers within the energy system. The body and the mind are linked. The body is ultimately a holographic representation of the mind. Chinese medicine long understood that there are different regions of your body that correspond to different bits of your mind, you know, and and the chakra system is not so different within the Hindu lines, you know. Many of these uh, lower-level mental qualities can be worked through in energy work, providing we understand exactly how to do it you know and this is where letting go comes in this concept of releasing Chinese call it song you know the uh, alternative community in the West calls it letting go or releasing or or, or so on so some of this can be done with energy work but uh, it can be tricky because the mind is amazingly good at hiding (laughs) your qualities from you we only have to look at how we justify our own actions or our own behaviors and I've seen people doing this all all sorts and including myself in this category as well. I've seen people on an everyday basis justifying behavior within themselves that they wouldn't allow others to get through. I've also seen what I would consider quite experienced spiritual practitioners doing it and uh, they're even more (laughs) stuck because they believe that they're beyond that trait yet still they'll justify their behavior in, in various ways. This self-justification is something that we need to be aware of because it is how the lower aspects of mind defend themselves and prevent themselves from being eradicated. But the problem is that if we do justify or try to step aside or move past those lower-level behaviors, then what will happen is the energy will start to fuel that state. Then it will grow. The problem is it's also hidden from us as well. That becomes a big problem. And then the next thing you know, you've gone down a, a route, of habitual reactivity that's not helpful for your development at all, and certainly not helpful for other people. There is a further distinction here between the two, the two traditions. We could say that the, the energetic traditions have a very um, emotional quality to them. I mean, sometimes I assume people try to deny that, but it's definitely true. Anytime there is an increase in energy moving through the body, people get all sorts of feelings. You only have to watch a Qigong class or Something like this to see the, the releases or the emotional experience. They can be anything through to, from euphoria um, and joy and laughter, through to you know negative feelings and sadness. I mean, they're all just expressions of of mind. And I've seen people do this kind of energy work. People within these lines, these traditions that are very much based on chi or prana, but can become quite emotional. And those emotions will, you know, vary. Uh, depending upon who they are or what their focus is or, or their experiences or, or you know, the focus for their training. Oftentimes these emotions can turn into a kind of ecstatic kind of release, a very sort of um, uh, powerful experience, almost like a rapture or something like that within these arts, um, which can bring feelings of love and connection and so on and so on. You know. But then you get people within the meditative traditions, and often what these develop is a kind of wisdom, a discernment, Um, between that which is true and that which is false Um, and in the end it it can make a person very uh, well give them a lot of clarity and so on and so on but but it can also kind of detach them from their emotions a little bit and you'll see the the two lines (laughs) try to um, justify their way you know so people within the energetic arts will often talk about this kind of boundless love that arises the bliss state and how that is something to be strived for And people within meditative traditions uh, certainly if they're very very into them you know very very serious about it will say oh that's overly emotional and you know actually there is another way to be that's sort of beyond that beyond the emotions that's based purely in knowing or wisdom or clarity or or whatever (laughs) and yeah they're right they're both right in a way but uh, actually for me it's when the two come together that the art is the most beautiful if someone is practicing a tradition that is based purely on eradication of that which is forced, the discernment to see through uh, to the you know, the purest sense of who you are, then often it can leave them quite cold. They might think they're just another way, but often no, there's a, there's a kind of coldness to them. There's a kind of strangely logical ruthlessness, I would say, to the nature of their mind. Not always, but, but quite often, especially if it's a meditation tradition that doesn't also have some kind of... Uh, or reverence aspect to it you know and then you get people who study just the energy arts and and actually I think they become a bit soppy for want of a better word a little bit sort of overly emotional and and you'll see that because they'll be all good they'll be full of love and connection and euphoria and rapture until something goes wrong you know until they're faced with some kind of stress and then this constant movement of energy through the emotional centers Um, often causes them to crumple, become sad, become stressed, become upset. You get this kind of over-fragile, over-sensitive state. Now for me, what has happened is the distinction, the erroneous distinction between energy work and and consciousness work or or meditative work is kind of this distinction has kind of moved people into one of the extremes because wisdom without love ultimately leads to coldness and a kind of emotional experience of life without wisdom leads to a kind of delusion or a fogginess of mind or something and really it's the two that must come together to produce the utmost results. It's not so literal, but we could kind of say that meditation brings someone closer to spirit or an understanding of spirit or what spirit is, whereas energy work kind of touches the soul, a slightly different (laughs) part of your being. But when the soul and the spirit come together, then this is the ultimate result. We could say that the spirit side of training, the the meditation maybe is good for uh, understanding the escape from samsara, the reincarnation cycle moving up towards higher states of comprehension. But at the same time, the soul enables you to connect with people and live on this earth. And Unless you've made a decision to be a complete recluse, to step away from life, to step away from existence. Uh, to go live your own, then you're still going to have to interact with people. So I spend a lot of my life in Asia, China, Southeast Asia, or various places like I am right now, you know. Um, A large degree of my life has been moving around and exploring, trying to find teachers of these traditions and people that can help explain it. Sometimes people have said, you know, you shouldn't seek, you shouldn't strive, but I disagree. I think that actually the seeking and the striving is as much a part of the learning as the exercises themselves. The dead ends that you follow and the the confusion you find and the the misunderstandings. Overcoming these are a part of the journey. Now, there's been several things that I've learned, several key points that I think have been turning points in my understanding. And I think that uh, most people who've been involved in these arts for a long time will agree that for them there's been several key understandings that have made a difference. Now for me one of the things that's made the biggest difference is understanding that in order to develop both meditative training and energetic training there is a key shared quality and that is that the mind must get out of the way. That is really very really important. Sometimes people say things like you get out of your own way or something and doesn't matter how you word it, but the mind must get out of the way. So with meditation training, self-inquiry, I think that's kind of self-evident in a way, you know, that essentially you're trying to understand through meditation training uh, that part of you that is observing self, that is observing mind. So there will be uh, traditions of meditation that are based in fully using the self or using the mind. And I personally, am um, not a fan, you know. Now I'm aware that by saying that, I'm arguing with <laughs> entire traditions. And who am I to say such things, you know. But my opinion is that at different times, for different people, different things have worked. For modern people, in modern times, from what I see, the traditions that are based very much in fully engaging the mind are not helpful. So what traditions do I mean? To do this anything that uses imagination or visualization are not helpful for people in modern times I think that as people these days we are so bombarded with visual imagery compared to people in the past television cinema walking around the streets you know billboards or telephones or whatever our visual uh, faculties are it's <laughs> certainly not under-stimulated. I don't think that's um, something that is is very uh, lacking in us, you know. And I think that sometimes when people have traditions that are very much based on visualization, very much based on this idea of creating images or imagining a light or, or or whatever, or picturing deities, I think it touches into a part of the mind that is already over-stimulated in a in a massive way. And the result of this is when people start engaging in this kind of thing. It sets off a whole trigger of other visual experiences that that are stored somewhere within the body, within the body's memory, within the mind's memory. Uh, And and this leads people down a path that's not that helpful. If you think about how it would have been several hundred years ago, you know, things would have been a little bit more bland. Temples might have been attractive, churches might have been attractive, but ultimately if we weren't uh, bombarded in the same way, no TVs, no telephones, and so on and so on, it would have been a lot more uh, calm, within the, the sense faculty of our vision. So then to generate an image within the space of the mind that was quite beautiful or, or something um, would have been quite a special experience, especially imagining a deity or, or so on and so on. But these days I just don't think it suits people quite so well. Perhaps we can say that visualization exercises, maybe they develop certain emotive qualities in people, but I don't find them personally helpful for people who are, are seeking the sort of root of meditation inquiry methods tend to be a lot more powerful or useful for meditation these days and also understanding that there is no such thing as a meditation exercise (laughs) and that's something i'll come back to later now it's the same for energy work maybe even more important for energy work the visualization or imagination is not used there are two reasons for this one It can lead to delusion and part of the problem with energy work is uh, it's difficult in the early stages to actually get the energy system going you know most people are operating on quite a low level of energy they don't have a lot of yin or yang chi they don't have a lot of electrical and magnetic energy in the body they don't have a lot of prana or they don't have access to it you know it's there but they can't access it now the result of this is that experience of it Or the reactions from it are actually quite low, quite subtle and this can be quite difficult, quite uh, lead to the difficulty of discerning what is real and what's not. Now the problem is as soon as I start using visualization or imagination I'm generating something that's not there, generating something within the mind and the result of this is what you will do is you will start to develop somatic experience because your nervous system gives you the feeling of anything that is generated by the sense faculties, that's how you Process these things, you know. So, when you have a visual experience, or you imagine a light, or you imagine a deity, there's going to be a feedback within the body sometimes, somewhere, some kind of somatic experience of it. Now, this can be problematic when you're then trying to discern between what is something that is generated purely by mind, or what is something that is generated within the body by the energy system, because ultimately they're not the same. People say, "Oh, all is mind." Yeah, maybe, <laughs> perhaps perhaps not. The second reason it can be problematic is because if you are using energy work and you are generating an action of mind you will then feed that action of mind so in the same way that I've already said the energy will feed the body energy will feed the uh, mind in the same way right so if I'm generating an image whether it's got an emotive quality or or not the energy is going to feed that part of the mind. Now this could be uh, positive I suppose if you're generating a very loving image, but it's still moving towards and fueling and sustaining something that is just part of the acquired mind. It is not going to move through to something deeper. So ultimately for energy work, the deepest aspects of it, what we want is we want it to support the experience of spirit. We want it to support the experience of the absolute, of something that is much deeper, more profound, and more honest than the acquired self. So if I'm constantly activating the mind through visualization, through uh, imagination then all that's going to happen is any energy you generate is going to go through to fuel that part of the mind. So in both cases, meditation and uh, energy work, mind or active use of the mind should step back and step out of the way. What we're left with at that stage is attention, pure, attentive, observation, or what the Chinese called listening, uh, to the process that is taking place. Now personally, the use of the word listening I think is very clever. To the ancient Chinese use this word ting, to listen to the body, to listen to the mind, because they very sensibly chose a sense faculty that wasn't your vision, right? So they don't tell you to observe the energy body, they don't tell you to observe the mind, they tell you to listen to the mind, they tell you to listen to the energy body. Why did they say listen? Why listen? Why not observe? Because they are advising to to move away from the visual sense faculty. They've been advising people in the Chinese traditions to do this (laughs) right from the beginning of all of these arts. Why did they want you to move away from that visual stimuli? That sense faculty of the vision? Because they didn't want you to imagine. They didn't want you to do this. So what is energy work? What is energy? What is (laughs) Qi? How do we understand this? It's difficult because uh, whilst the, the old analogies are true, there are channels, there is a Dantian and so on and so on, or there can be built a Dantian, people don't realize you don't begin with one, I'm afraid. Whilst all these things are true, the Dantian the channels, they have a tendency to be misunderstood and, and misconceived and start to become a little bit woolly, don't they? You know, especially when it starts to mix with the newer, new age community or, or something. What's worth remembering that while we do have channels and so on and so on, they are also a conceptual framework to help you understand. And sometimes to move deeper, we need to break past these conceptual barriers and understand what is actually taking place. Now in Taoism, in the Ne Gong traditions, they talk about two forms of qi. They talk about yin qi and yang qi. Ultimately yin qi is that which organizes, yang qi is that which animates. Yin qi moves in fields. Yin is said to have form. Okay, So it moves in spherical fields. Ultimately, it's a form of magnetism. So, one of the earliest stages in Negong training is learning to develop the Dantian. Yeah. The Dantian is like a container, but first we have to build the outer wall of the container, and the container is built from Yin qi, magnetism, which organizes everything in the abdomen. If you are over about 13, 14 years old, something like this, your dantian container, your yin field is already dispersed so we must bring it back, we must reconsolidate it. Then you have yang qi and where does yang qi move? Yang qi is electrical and it tends to move within the nervous system, not purely but within the nerves. So anything that animates or stimulates the body is yang. Why? Because it's moving in the nerves. It moves in a linear fashion, it circulates through the nerves of the spine and so on and so on now there is a third form of Qi that is essentially I suppose you could say a combination of the two or or maybe it's a, a more subtle aspect of, of energy and this circulates outside of the nervous system and outside of the tissues outside of these organizing magnetic fields and this moves through subtle channels that exist as kind of a, those who can perceive it as a kind of lines or strings of light pathways of light within the body now those pathways of light are difficult to work with so what we do is we fuel them and we do this by building the yin and the yang qi and a lot of the training in qigong and negong and or even within yogic traditions especially the tantric ones were again based around this idea of building these two forms of qi this electricity and this magnetism now if you understand the chi is like this and it moves in the nerves moves in the nervous system we can see why it has such a connection to the mind the nervous system and the mind are and the brain are inextricably linked and any stimulation of the nervous system can be a little more make you a little bit more hyper or a little bit more m- emotional or it can sedate you if, if another part of the the nervous system is engaged and ultimately this is what we're trying to manage trying to develop through energy work so to me energy work is not not as vague not as fluffy, not as sketchy or or unexplained as some people uh, tend to think. To increase the efficiency of the body's functioning for energy work, the processes are always very similar. We need to build more of the organizing qi, yin qi in Taoism, they have different terms for it in other traditions, and yang qi, the animating energy within the body, it must be developed, and then they must learn how to harmonize and work with one another. Now sometimes the people think this qi comes from outside the body. There are old traditions that say you gather it from the stars, you gather it from the trees, you gather it from the environment, well, that might be true to a minor level, a little bit, you know. But ultimately, most of that energy is developed from inside of you. It comes from your cells, it comes from the efficiency of the functioning of the body. So one thing we need to do in Neigong or Taoism is to transform the way that the body functions transform its efficiency so that we're able to access more of of this energy and it is not done through imagination, it is not done through uh, intention, it is done through a methodology of efficiently changing the engine on the inside of the body and this is where the, the sort of lineages came in because they were storehouses of these traditions and this is what I spent so long <laughs> trying to find and exploring the world because Too many times people have tried to replace a lack of knowledge with their imagination, fill in the blanks using the mind and and this has ultimately been unhelpful and weakened some of the traditions. To find an authentic line has been tricky, has been tricky. (laughs) Now for meditation, one of the things that I've told people that is confusing the most is when I say there's no such exercise as a meditation exercise, there's nothing that will lead you to meditation, because what is meditation? Ultimately, I suppose, it's a state that we could call uh, or they call jhana or samadhi, you could argue, which uh, a kind of a kind of focused, absorbed state. Uh, But it doesn't arise through doing, it arises through non-doing. Now, (laughs) where do we see examples of this? Well, we see it when, uh, you know, people talk about their experiences and what do they say? You know, people who've had these awakened experience or entered uh, very deep jhanic states or or realizations of the truth of reality. When they've awakened, when they've been enlightened. The stories are always the same. They were walking across a field or they were sat under a tree or they just sat down to close their eyes. I have a couple of teachers that had these profound experiences uh, mentally and spiritually. And they were always doing quite innocuous things. They were just, they weren't practicing at the time. They just sat down, closed their eyes and boom, it hit them like a... A strike, a, a bolt of lightning through the body or, or something like this. Why? Because they weren't doing anything, they weren't observing their breath, <laughs> they weren't uh, trying to focus on any particular mental quality, there was no object of meditation at the time, they were just relaxed. So I met several teachers like this and encountered them and and actually It surprised me that some of them came to what I would consider a wrong view, an incorrect view. Was that they then came to the conclusion that all of the work they had done had been wasted and that actually there's nothing to do, there's no path. (laughs) You're already there, you're already done for meditation, just just do, just be. It's not quite right. The reason that they'd had those states was because they had developed certain habitual qualities. or the majority of them developed certain habitual qualities. And this is what people don't understand about meditation training. It's meditation training develops the habitual qualities. That's what it does. So if for example I am trying to develop the quality of insight, maybe through observation of the breath or, and developing the quality of concentration or in developing the quality of mental stability or in developing the quality of equanimity or whatever. There are all these, these qualities. And what happens is you might have a different meditation exercise for different quality. So a common one is following the breath to develop some kind of uh, insight and calm abiding. Okay, and then this exercise will develop this particular quality and sometimes people get stuck at that exercise for too long and they already have that quality and they need to have another objective meditation and so that another quality is developed and this is really where the skill of the meditation instructor comes in because a meditation instructor should be able to look at you especially if they're a master and know what mental qualities you are lacking. Oh, this person lacks insight or whatever. This person lacks discernment or whatever. So they should give you an object of meditation or a method if you like, that will uh, develop that specific quality in you. When all of the required qualities are there, which is why meditation systems are quite big, you don't just sit and shut your eyes and breathe. But when all of those qualities are there habitually in you, then when you just sit and close your eyes then if you are (laughs) lucky it's a strange word to use but you know what i mean if it is your time whatever you want to put there then you will boom enter that meditative state do you enter that state during your practice no you enter it when you just sat down and relax because now whatever habitual qualities are there will come to the fore and if you've developed 10 of the required qualities i know it's a horrible linear way of putting it but you know what I mean then when you sit and relax then those qualities will come to the surface and then those are the things that are needed to take you to that state. I kind of try to explain it to people as they all of the mental qualities that you require are kind of like tuning forks you know and all of the tuning forks must be there and must be harmonizing with one another in order to lead you to that state and if you have all of these tuning forks and one of these tuning forks is not in sync then it's not It's not going to help you because that that harmony is not going in the same direction. It's not not leading you to that point. So the evidence of this is kind of contained within the teachings of the traditions themselves because it doesn't matter if it was various lines of Buddhism or Taoism or or Hinduism or or whatever, Christianity or I don't know. They each talk about specific mental qualities, don't they? Emotional qualities and then maybe we could say mental qualities rather than emotional qualities. Both of these. So there are certain mental or emotional qualities that are developed through kind of precepts of your actions or advice on how you interact with people compassion and kindness understanding empathy so on and so on then there are mental qualities discernment um, and clarity and equanimity those kind of things those are the qualities that they're trying to tell you within the traditions are needed to create the harmonization that leads towards that state it's possible for someone to enter a non-dual state, an experience of something beyond truth. Without those qualities, beyond sort of, sorry, uh, something... It's possible for someone to enter into a a state of void, or a state of Tao, or a non-dual state without those qualities, but ultimately they become like a ship lost at sea. It's kind of like when you enter the meditative state, whatever you want to call it, you enter that void state, It's kind of like you've gone into a new land and then people think that's the answer, they are there. It's not true. It's a new land but it's a land that doesn't have a map. What is the map that's going to enable you to navigate that space? It is the mental qualities that are taught within the wisdom traditions. They might have a slightly different map but ultimately it will enable you to navigate the same landscape, navigate the same landscape. Someone who doesn't have a map will often enter that state and then come out of that state. Somebody that does have the map, they have the keys of the tuning forks of the mental qualities will find that they have a way to navigate that space. Then what happens is that journey that they take through that space is supported from underneath by the energy work. That's kind of like the, the wind in the sails of the ship that's navigating this ocean of mental space they've entered. And then the result is they can move towards a state of enlightenment. It's also interesting to note that the relationship between meditative training and uh, energy work or, or uh, anything that moves the qi or builds the channels is that ultimately one of the practices is sedating or calming generally and the other practice is stimulating. So we want these two to kind of uh, function together, the harmonization of yin and yang, the bringing together of these two forces. So meditative training calms or sedates the mind uh, generally. Now, this is obviously what we want because clarity, insight, equanimity, qualities like this depend generally upon there being a certain degree of uh, calming or, or relaxing or taking towards a more yin or still point. That's true. But at the same time, there also wants to be some life in the system because uh, if there is too much calm, too much sedation, for some people who've not dealt with certain qualities, certain traumas, certain things that are in their mind, it can actually lead to depression. And this is where a lot, of the, a lot of the problems can arise within meditative training without people knowing, you know, without people understanding how they've done it or where the error has arisen. What has happened is rather than uh, touching a profound level of stillness, all they've done is sedate that excitement that kept them happy essentially in life. And this can make them miserable and, and so on and so on. Now people who who don't struggle with that side of their mind don't encounter that and they can find it strange. So you can get this weird sort of lack of empathy or understanding in meditators who sort of successfully touched upon some kind of profound stillness sometimes because they don't understand that that not everybody starts at the same place. So for a lot of people there wants to be some kind of stimulation, some kind of excitement, some kind of a livening of the system. And really uh, Qigong provides this. Yet at the same time, if people excite the system and generate more energy and move it around, it can create a kind of uh, emotional anxiety or a kind of heightened uh, sort of state that it can become a little bit uncomfortable if it's not sedated a little bit with meditation. So These two uh, work hand in hand. This is the yin and yang of the, of the two being applied at the same time. I'm, I'm sometimes uh, struck by this, if I see people that have just studied kind of inquiry methods or just sitting still and looking inside, very Zen sort of methods often. Sometimes people have touched a very profound state, but oftentimes what actually happens is people become quite docile, you know. It's kind of borders on, <laughs> for want of a better laziness, you know, there's a kind of exhaustion to their soul or something like that, and, and life becomes a kind of tiresome to them. And, and they might deny this because, um, you know, they might say that, no, 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 life, you know, I've touched upon all these states. But I, I've met lots of, uh, lots of cultivators, meditating cult- cultivators that I would say are tired of life. And they might say, oh, that's good because they're escaping samsara. But, well, <laughs> maybe. Or maybe you're just uh, wasting the opportunity for the experience of something beautiful, which is life. You know, life has its ugly sides, but it also has a, a huge amount of beauty that we can appreciate as well. Now, the part of the reason that they've become disinterested in existence is because they sedated themselves, and one of the things they sedated was their sense faculties, to the point of the sense faculties no longer enjoying existence anymore. There must be some kind of stimulation of these things, you know, and this is where the energy work comes in for me, or the sort of synthesis of the, of the two systems, and it doesn't matter where, the, where this energy work comes from, maybe it comes from Tai Chi, maybe it comes from Neigong. who knows, but it has to be there. If you want to, uh, uh, you know, fully get involved in the rich tapestry—the tapestry that is existence. Now, energy workers who only do energy work, sometimes what they do is they hyper-stimulate everything, so there's no calm, and you end up with a very heightened, sort of anxious, overly sensitive. Um, state that I would call sort of highly strung, really, if I had to put a a descriptive term on it, it's very highly strung, because they lack the kind of equanimity that can come from the sort of karma side of this training, the the meditative side of it. And and really, if we can get these two to work together, then, you know, you get perfection, because this is it, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, rest, work and rest, or stimulation and, and calmness, that's what we want. Uh, to try to get to work for us in the best way, the best way possible. I have to say that one of the hallmarks for me of somebody that has really successfully synthesized these two sides of the training is that there is a a great enjoyment for life, but a kind of equanimity or neutrality uh, to the emotional pulls um, that life offers. And to me that is kind of the ultimate, or that's what I, I personally strive for, or seek out, or, or find inspiring in a, in a high-level practitioner to be able to deal with life in this way. You know, I don't want, the, I don't want the, the negative experience of life as a bore. I want nothing to do with it. That. That's no good. But I also don't want the heightened, overly sensory, stimulated uh, side of life either. Somewhere in the center, the harmonization of the two um, to me is, is, is perfect. That's what I seek. The ancient cultures understood this balance of the two. Uh, it's not hard to see that. I mean, uh, you only have to walk into a temple, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist or Taoist or whatever. Um, the symbology contained within the statues and contained within the art book is a combination of these two things. You'll see uh, statues or imagery of people meditating, sat cross legged, hands in common mudras. And yet, at the same time, you'll, <laughs> you'll see images of people enshrouded in flames and with mudras in their hands and performing all of these esoteric uh, shapes. You get the old 100 arms deities, which to me are just stop-frame animation of this sort of common uh, Qigong exercise, rather than someone with a hundred arms or, or something. And, and These kind of, these imageries exist together in the same time, in the same place within the temples. They are trying to indicate that this is here. You only have the, the symbol of the lightning bolts, the thunder, the lightning, the, the vajra, the, you know, the, the diamond that is produced from the pressurization of the body. These are all energetic symbols. They're showing you that there is an energetic component um, behind it and that these two were equally valued within their systems. One was not placed at a higher point than another. But what generally happens, as with all things, is styles develop. Okay? and What is a style? A style is two different people. They both have a tendency towards one thing or the other. One is better at meditation, one is better at energy work for example and so their students tend to follow their kind of preferences and gradually what you get is a style. Now a style is a deviation from sort of harmonized unification of the whole at the beginning. That's ultimately what it is and this is why they always say that eventually you have to rise above styles, not from the beginning. (laughs) You have to have a, a groundwork in something. But ultimately, you must look, what is the style, what is the bias, the preference that this system has developed? And then you must round that out a little bit, and, and this is quite a, a common thing. You'll see this in China a lot, it's why um, Taoists often will do 30 years of Taoism and then convert to Buddhism. And then at the same time, Buddhists will do 30 years of Buddhism and then convert to Taoism. That's quite normal um, within China, there's a, there's a long tradition of this. And and people from a sort of more conventional Western religious background will see that conversion as a kind of you know, changing from a a Catholic to a follower of Judaism or something, but it's not the same. They're not really after that. It's because they're trying to harmonize the system, the practice. It's not a case of changing their religious beliefs from one deity to another. It's because they're trying to balance the energetic work and the meditative work, the energy system and the mind to to get them to work um, together, to get both sides of the coin. Alchemy. The Taoist practice of alchemy really was an amalgamation of the two. If you really look what alchemy is, alchemy is what happens, internal alchemy at least, when meditation and energetics meet each other. That That's really what you you have. And even that you've seen styles develop because some people teach alchemy very much as if it's kind of qigong, you know, it's all about moving energy here, moving energy there. Other people teach alchemy very much as if everything alchemical is a metaphor for just something that you would do in, inquiry-based meditation, but actually that's not the case. It's, it's a synthesis of the two. It's a, it's a coming together of these two sides of the coin, how to balance the mental body and how to balance the energetic body, how to get the soul and the spirit practices to meet in order to elevate people to the, to the highest stages they possibly could, chemical evolution. There's a difference between the states that can be achieved in meditation Sometimes people don't seem to recognize this, like, but we have these different terms. I know they're in English, but we talk about awakening, self-realization, don't we? We talk about enlightenment, immortality. We have these different phrases. and Sometimes people assume they're the same thing, but they're not. They're not the same. They're quite different from one another. Realization of the God state, Godhead, is talked about in some traditions. This is, they're not the same. Many people have achieved an awakening. Some people have achieved a self-realization. I mean, these are not uncommon in the West, but not many people have achieved enlightenment, definitely not, fewer still have achieved immortality. And what are these things? They're not the same. So self-realization or uh, awakening, you know, awakening from the slumber of the acquired self. These can be temporary or these can be stabilized by the energy in the system and be permanent. But ultimately, what they're referring to is a kind of uh, not an intellectual understanding, but an experiential understanding—a change of insight, you know, a change of perspective of viewing the self, so that you can uh, experience the truth of what you are, rather than the transience of uh, the transience of the acquired self. Once people achieve an awakening, then generally there's a, a lack of identification with this kind of individuated sense of self. And instead there's a a start of union with the absolute, you know, a a realization that actually uh, consciousness or or spirit and and human life are not necessarily the same. Awakening is a profound experience, so some people can have momentarily or or some people can exist with, you know, but it's difficult to stabilize. But once, once that awakening has happened, it's very hard to go back with regards to how you view your world. It can either change your... Uh, trajectory in life or it can create (laughs) a great sense of frustration when you can't return to that state. Now awakenings happen to people for all sorts of reasons anything from deep self-inquiry work through to trauma on such a personal level that your mind can't take it anymore so it kind of snaps you out of that suffering into realization of the truth through to random awakenings that people get from a bang on the head or or I've known people who've had I know one person actually who's had an awakening uh, from somebody transmitting it to them, something called shaktipat to, to issue or transmit the experience to pass it on to them. You know, so awakenings can come from all sorts of, of things. So when a person is awakened, uh, then you know they've reached a very high stage in their training. Then you have enlightenment. Enlightenment's not the same. So enlightenment would mean ultimately that somebody has escaped uh, the cycle of, of rebirth. So within Eastern traditions, they talk about several layers of existence, the hell realms, the animal realms, the human realm, placing us in the middle, and then two realms above us, of deities in the heaven realms. And sometimes traditions will subdivide these more, but ultimately what they're trying to imply is that rather than being at the peak of kind of spiritual evolution, human beings sit in the center. And depending upon our actions, um, then we can either attach to or re-experience the realms below or the realms above in the next life. This, This was kind of an idea that all religions touched upon to a certain extent with the concepts of heaven and hell. Now, if somebody is awakened, self-awakened, realization of the state of of themselves, that doesn't necessarily mean they escape that cycle. So chances are they they may still have to redo that cycle. Uh, They may have to come back and and relive as a human again. And the karmic cleansing that they would go through, according to spiritual traditions, would mean that... Ultimately, they uh, you know, come back in a, in a very set place, a, a place that gives them the potential to, to carry on those spiritual learnings in the next life. Some traditions refer to them, they would say this is one way to enter the stream, so that uh, if you enter the stream ultimately means you have a certain amount of lifetimes uh, left within the kind of reincarnation cycle, and during that uh, period of life, you're supposed to accumulate more spiritual teachings before you free yourself from the cycle. Somebody who is enlightened is a little different. Enlightened means you escape the cycle, so at the point of death, which you can normally choose, uh, then the spirit actually leaves um, the body and moves up to the next stage uh, towards the heaven realms, so that rather being reborn in a human state, uh, you are born in the heaven realms, uh, so that you essentially come back as a kind of minor deity or, or a spiritual being. So, this might sound... (laughs) Unusual to some people listening, but of course this was the belief of the traditions that put together these arts. But somebody could not achieve that state, an enlightened state, purely through self-inquiry or or realization. There had to be a kind of mechanic behind it. And this is really where the energy work came in. There had to be a combination of the two. So within uh, Hindu traditions or yogic traditions, they might talk about the Kundalini. Um, and with the alchemical traditions they talk about uh, the dragon energy needing awakening or the alchemical pill needing forming, but ultimately what they're talking about is energy work. So what enlightenment is is a combination of somebody who is awakened, the awakened state, okay, which comes from the inquiry, combined with the energetic work. So that what happens is the massive amount of energetic fuel that is developed um, is essentially then driven up and fuels that awakened state until the, the spirit, is, uh, essentially becomes bathed in light. So the mechanic of this is then at the point of death, then instead of the spirit being passed on to the next life, somebody who is in enlightened, filled with light, their spirit is then able to move up um, by a, a vibrational level onto the next stage, so they move to the realm of deities. This is, this is what enlightenment is. So it's a little different, well it's majorly different, you know. but enlightenment would require the energetic work as well. So. Sometimes within some traditions, not all, but in some, they would have public teachings for awakening, private teachings for enlightenment, um, because they also realized that, you know, the amount of energy that is required to fuel the spirit, you know, is, is like a rocket, isn't it? You know, you need that rocket fuel underneath you. That if that fuel was sent to the wrong place, somebody who wasn't awakened, then ultimately it could create Um, a great distortion in that person's nature, um, something that's quite negative. And if that level of distortion was there, then there's a chance of developing negative court karma, which instead of sending them up to the heaven realm, could catapult them down onto a lower realm. So ultimately it could be quite um, (laughs) dangerous on a a spiritual level, you know. So enlightenment requires these two things, the awakening process uh, plus, plus the energetics must be there too. The energetics alone are problematic. The awakening alone does not free you from the cycle of rebirth. Now the problem is the, the movement up and down through the realms is ultimately dependent upon karma, freeing of karma. Karma and karma ultimately is like a, a weight. Uh, my teacher explains it as like a parasitic kind of thing that can only exist when it's attached to the soul. So what happens when this karma is there is it, it, causes, you, it causes the kind of uh, the causation of your next birth Um, to to take place, you know, the kind of qualities that are there. Now whilst on the heaven, on the human realm, the earth realm, it's possible to learn from this karma and clear this karma and develop this karma, so change causation. But once you're on the level above, on the level of deities, then karma has no no meaning, not really. It kind of just plays out and then will, uh, you know, return you back to, to where you started. So what happens is when someone achieves enlightenment, the next stage up from awakening, you can kind of think of it as being a bit like an orbit, you know, like a large orbit. So somebody will move up towards the heaven realm, but because they can't clear any more karma, they can't actually elevate to the realm above, so they get stuck on the realm above humans. So one of the names for this realm, it's not the greatest name, but one of the, the names for it, to help you remember this, was the, the realm of the jealous deities. And people don't understand why, why they're jealous, what are they jealous of? Well, they're jealous of humans, is the idea, Because the humans can still clear their karma, but the deities cannot because they exist in a realm beyond causation. So they cannot clear that karma. So once someone is enlightened, they can go to that stage, but they can't progress, so they get stuck. So is this a bad thing? No. No, because during the time in the heaven realm, they are accumulating more spiritual potential. Uh, You can think of spirit as being kind of like a fuel in its own right. It's not that literal, but it's kind of like spiritual momentum is building and building and building. But at some stage, they're going to have to come back to the human realm in order to then uh, realize the potential of this spiritual fuel and then to clear more karma so they can elevate above and catapult up two realms, up to pure, pure heavenly realm. So this is why you get these kind of stories of... uh, the returning of Buddha, the returning of Christ, the second coming of whoever, you know, the enlightened being that's going to be reborn in 10,000 years, 20,000 years, or whatever. Doesn't matter. The amount of years that they'll come back will depend upon the size of the orbit. So maybe uh, this person here, Lama, whatever, has achieved enlightenment in the human realm. So what happens when they're enlightened is then the fuel will bring their spirit up a vibrational frequency towards the realm of jealous deities. Now, their orbit might be a thousand years, so that means for a thousand years they're not reborn. Instead, they exist in, that, in this sort of low-level heavenly realm, accumulating spiritual potential, spiritual momentum. But at some stage, that spiritual momentum will kind of bottom out or, or max out, so then they have to return to the human realm. Now, when they return to the human realm, they'll bring with them all sorts of uh, spiritual knowledge and spiritual wisdom. And, of course, to human beings, other humans on this realm, they're not only going to appear incredibly... Why is it going to appear like deities on earth, you know, they're going to be your Buddhas or your Christ figures. Great spiritual traditions are going to build around them. Their spiritual potential is massive because the spiritual energy they've built in the realm above the human realm is just piling out of them and eradicating and and speeding up and influencing the karma of the human beings that they meet. So they become great spiritual teachers. Now at this stage, while they're doing this spiritual teaching and having this impact, this is clearing more karma. And ultimately, the aim for these people is to become what the Chinese call immortal. So an immortal is someone who is essentially enlightened, but managed to go up two realms. So instead of going human to jealous deities, where there's still work to be done, so they're going to have to come back to this human realm, they go to the full heavenly realm, several frequencies above, where they don't have to return. So once someone is immortal, they are fully freed from the samsaric cycle, and they exist. Uh, within the the highest echelons, the highest realms of of heaven, and this is what immortality is. So within the traditions, whether it's the Hindu deities or the uh, Taoist immortals, ultimately what these these beings are, are beings sort of gone past awakening, gone past enlightenment and, and reached immortality. So immortality is this combination of awakening, the fuel of enlightenment, plus the spiritual potential that's come from the, time in the heavenly realm and when these three come together then it can elevate the spirit to the highest possible levels that of an immortal (laughs) Just going to move this ant gently over here because they do tend to bite but so i will encourage him in this direction now all of that might sound really cosmic and and not within people's belief systems and that's okay it doesn't matter um i'm not trying to convince you of anything Uh, you know that's up to you um, all I'm explaining is the, the mechanics behind the, the belief systems of the, of the Eastern traditions, how they worked and, and what these things are. Because people talk about awakening and enlightenment and immortality like the same thing. And, and also, one of the errors I think people make is maybe they achieve an awakening, a, a realization. They think the job is done. The job is not done. There is still more work to do. The same as there is with enlightenment. There is still more work to do. At some point, that... <laughs> pull back to the earth realm is going to be there, and it's required in order to take you to back to this place uh, where more work can be done to move towards immortality. Now, understanding this, the difference between these three can help us to understand why the energy work and the meditation comes together. It can also maybe show us that it's a long slog, you know, it's hard work, it's not even, it's not even just one lifetime's work. If you need to go up a realm to to build this spiritual potential and oh yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to take a while, you know, but uh, it also makes clear that this idea of self-realization, awakening, freedom from suffering, freedom from Dukkha is not the, not the end of the story. So these people that achieve a self-realization or awakening through their in, in, sort of inquiry practice might have entered the stream, but really there's more work to do. There's more work to do. Traditions like Vedanta, I did Vedanta, that are based very much on this kind of uh, realization of kind of true self or, or the Godhead or true spirit or whatever, you know, the traditions will vary with their terminology. This is only half the story. This is only half the story. And at the same time, those traditions that are very much based on this idea of awakening the serpent energy within us, the Kundalini or something, this is also only half the story potentially a, a slightly more dangerous half of the story the two must come together there should be no separation between energy work and meditative training to me they for someone who is interested in the whole picture that is the whole picture they must both exist uh, together together